This is a poem by Pablo Neruda, and this is a small excerpt from the poem. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. So tonight, I want to explore keeping still in the context of movement. We're watching movement. We're involved in movement. And to explore the stillness that's inevitably involved in movement. And what we are learning is we're collecting and unifying the mind, which in fact brings it to a still point, no matter how brief. And to understand this interplay of understanding between stillness and movement. This, uh, this exploration has some ideas in it, but the ideas are not pointing to mental configuration, but rather pointing to an intuitional understanding. So we're not trying to figure something out. There's nothing to grab hold of. Just stay open to whatever intuitional understanding may arise now or sometime later in this retreat from just hearing some of this, this kind of uh, reflection. That's all. So the, the practice as it's been every night is to spend at least 50% of your attention on the breath in the body and then 50% or less available to hear words. But mostly we're listening from what, our, what we intuitively know what we intuitively know. One of the things about movement is that we're watching the movement of breath. But in watching the movement of breath, we are preparing ourselves later on in our Vipassana practice to watch the movement of mind. Because in each instance, it is movement. And we are developing this habit, we're developing these skillful means to observe movement without getting caught in movement, without demanding that the mind, wherever it's moving, be other than it is, because we can't make the breath be other than it is. So we're learning how to be with. The, when the mind starts moving, when it starts jumping everywhere and going and proliferating, we call that papacha mind. Papancha mind, this explosion of memory and association and planning and judging and comparing and fixing mind. All of that is papancha mind. That will come up a little later. So to uh, pick up where Eugene left off last night when he was quoting the, the, the Venerable Suzuki Roshi, when he says, we when we practice, our mind always follows our breathing skipping part of what Eugene read last night to the last paragraph of that. So when we practice, all that exists is the movement of breathing. But we are aware 
underlined, underlined, but we are aware of this movement. But to be aware of the movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self, but rather your universal nature or Buddha nature. So to be aware of movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self. He's pointing to the kind of liberation, the kind of freedom that can arise momentarily when we are aware of movement, but in a non-identified way, which will lead us back, as we'll see in the course of the evening, to this sense of stillness. Again, this is intuitional knowing, not figuring out, not asking your frontal lobes to do any heavy lifting. Also, uh, this exploration tonight comes in the context of Sally's uh, wonderful teaching the other night about the seven awakening factors, and which she showed us, and remember the list you were given, some of you still have them there in front of you, how concentration is one of the key awakening factors that leads to equanimity, the, the, the most regarded of the seven awakening factors, the maturation in many ways of the practice. This is from uh, uh, Ajahn Amaro and uh, Ajahn Pasano's wonderful book called The Island. I'm going to read from it two or three times tonight. Equanimity is called upeka, upeka. And it says they here, quoting, uh, that upeka is the highest of the seven bojangas, the factors of awakening. When the seven factors are developed successfully, all seven factors of awakening, when the seven factors are developed successfully, they lead to the penetration of the object on which they are focused. So this penetrating, the insight practice is a practice of penetration, as I said the other night in the overview of this practice. We are practicing reflectively right now. So the concentration is reflecting the object. When we turn to Vipassana, we're investigating. But this is the preparation, this is the empowerment for our Vipassana. As taught by the Buddha, you know, no, no one's made this up since then. This is the way it was originally presented. Upeka is the highest of the seven bojanga factors of awakening. When the seven factors are developed successfully, they lead to the penetration of the object on which they are focused. Penetration or direct spiritual experience, intuitive knowing, direct experience, Penetration or direct spiritual experience means awakening to and deeply realizing the true nature of things. So this is, this is the empowerment of the awakening factors is that we can penetrate with understanding in this way. Also, the, uh, one other evening, Andrea talked about the jhana factors. And she briefly mentioned the four jhanic states, just, just briefly mentioning. These four jhanic states are uh, part of a, a, a larger map that includes four immaterial or rupa jhanas, four absorptions that are not 
that are not in the material level. And I'm just going to mention them to you. One is the, 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 where you become absorbed in uh, infinite space or limitless space. This is, uh, this is uh, something that you get a, a little foretaste of in just our regular practice, where you will feel spaciousness and it just seems so vast. You're getting a little foretaste of that, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a strong experience, this, this fifth jhana. And then the sixth jhana is the infinite or limitless consciousness, where just as space was the object in the fifth jhana, you take, you take as your object consciousness itself, and you see the limitlessness, the infiniteness of consciousness. So the, these, these objects, these very immaterial objects are becoming the objects of concentration. And the mind has developed the subtlety through the very practice that we're doing. We just keep going down this path to the point that one is able to do this. And then the, the seventh jhana is, is called the, uh, the absorption into nothingness. And then the eighth jhana is uh, called the absorption into neither perception nor non-perception. And it would take uh, too much time to explain those, and so I'm not going to do that. Uh, they, and there's certainly dispute about certain what's among some people about what that means and all. And it's been a very interesting exploration for me in my own practice as I've done this. So, in the, um, in the, when, when Andrea was talking the other night, uh, she was talking about the jhana factor and what the, that, that uh, last jhanic factor of the five jhanic factors was ekagata. This, 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 this sense of equanimity, equanimity in a, used in, in relation to absorption. And I want to uh, read you one other thing having to do with that. That's, um, again, you're not to figure it out, but just to uh, hear the, the, this, this vast architect, this beautiful architecture of, of the mind that the Buddha presented us with. It is dazzling. It's so beautiful. And the dazzlingness, the, the beautifulness of it, the uh, perfection of mind that he reveals as he takes it apart in a certain way to show us the parts of it can be very inspiring to our concentration practice. We are just so interested in cultivating the mind that can just be still on one object. Because we're wanting to cultivate this mind. We're wanting to let the full magnificence of this mind be felt just in this breath, just in this breath. This is, this is Ajahn Chah, and he, he says, About this mind, in truth, there's nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. This mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Unmoving, unmoving. This mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Did you believe that looking at your mind all day? (laughs) This mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. 
just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. They're just sense impressions. The five senses and the mind itself. This is the way the mind moves. In this practice, we're slowly inviting the mind to not move, to be with one object, to come into the beginning of what is an ever deeper sense of stillness of the mind. So as we get our little glimpses of this, our modest glimpses, and watch how you think everybody else is getting these glimpses and you're not. That's, uh, that's a very common thing to think as we're practicing that everybody else is having a much better time than we are. And we don't even know what time we're having, let alone what time <laughs> someone else is having. So, so abandoning that as best we're able. We do that, any of that little moments of calm that you sometimes have. That's the foretaste. That's the glimpse. Those little moments of non-attachment where something came up and ordinarily you would have grabbed hold of that and you just went back to the breath. That's a glimpse. When there's a sense of letting go of something that you wanted, that's a glimpse. Uh, 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 And I say this next one with permission. One yogi came in today and said that uh, her mind is, is slowing down to the point that papancha mind, this associative thinking, this, uh, this memory jumping around, one thing leading to another, you know, all this fixing, judging, comparing, all of that. She said papancha mind has become slow motion papancha mind. <laughs> and that is a sign. That's this, that's, that means that the mind is starting to settle down. To what? To its true nature. To its nature when it's not being fluttered by the wind, by sense impressions. To um, state this uh, a a little more uh, poetically, this stillness. This is from uh, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement. So neither arrest, neither stopping nor moving. It's not that way. So what's being pointed to is different than that by Ajahn Chah, which he's reflecting here. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered here, now here, now. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, for past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards. Neither movement from nor towards. Neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, 
neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. When I read the quote from Ajahn Suchito the other night, when he talked about the relaxed, concentrated mind experiences the joy of embodied presence. The joy of embodied presence. When the mind settles, when the mind rests, when we come into this moment, this moment, which is not a moment that's exactly in time, but it is here and now. When we come into this moment, this joy, this joy of embodied presence becomes available to us. And we all have little glimmers of it. So the invitation tonight is to acknowledge that. To dare to open to your own knowing that which you already know. That your heart's available this way for knowing. That the mind and its purity is available for knowing in this way. Here now. Here now. The other morning when I, I led us through the uh, coming into the earth element, remember, we, we first focused on the earth element and we really spent quite a bit of time on the earth element and then we moved to the wind element with the, represented by the breath. So there's the earth element and the wind element. One way of understanding that is that with the earth element, we are tuning ourselves to stillness. Not perfect stillness. That's a whole philosophical discussion that's not on the agenda for tonight. But it's the stillness of the earth, like the stillness of the mountain. Not a dead stillness, a live, ever-changing stillness, but a stillness. And then when we follow the breath, we're focused on movement. So, earth and wind. Stillness and movement. Many of you reported in, in, in the practice discussions about finding it advantageous to work with that earth element and then go to the, to, the, uh, to the breath because you could really feel the movement of the wind because you had gotten more still with the earth element. That's the way it's designed. These two uh, uh, have this, uh, this, this interplay, the stillness and the dance. The wind element represents the dance of movement. There would be no life without movement. If you're not moving, you're dead. And yet, without the with stillness, there would really not be any unfolding of the movement, as we will see as this goes on. So just for a moment now, I would have you first reflect does, does one preclude the other? Do you first think, oh, if there's stillness, there can't be movement? Do you think that way? Is that like the first little thought that you have? Or, in fact, could it be that each requires the other, which is what I am suggesting, which is what was talked about by John Cha, which was reflected in the Eliot poem, that these two, these two require one another, and that it is in our stillness of our knowing that we actually know the movement the movement of anything, but in our retreat at this time, 
the movement of the breath. Where from the stillness, knowing movement. So close your eyes for a moment. You don't have to sit straight. You can sit any way you want. And just come into the body for a moment. Drop out of the head center. I can feel you up there in your head. You come down with the rest of us. Down into the body. The feet. The legs. The pelvic bow. The lower abdomen and belly. chest and back. Can you feel the stillness in the body? Can you feel the movement of the breath? Is this not possible? Is it not the stillness of the belly or the chest that allows you to feel the wind element moving the belly or moving the chest or moving the throat or moving across the stillness of the opening of the nostrils? Can you not feel the stillness? Now, in this same way, watch your mind, watch your mindfulness. Focusing on the breath, is there not some hint, some larger feeling of stillness, of attention. Can you notice right now that stillness of your attention on breath, breath in the body? The breath is moving, but the attention is still. Is it not? Now, rather than continuing to look at the breath, turn around in your attention and look at that stillness. Make it your object. How still the knowing is. What are the qualities of this stillness? Is it spacious? Is it steady? Is it calm? Is there just a hint of that joyous presence that Suchito was teaching us? When attention is relaxed, 
and steady. The true nature of mind starts to be felt. Now, before we resume our exploration, turn back to the breath once again. Feel all that's there with the breath in the way of this relaxed attention. The breath is the dance of life. The stillness is that which is knowing. The two are rising, passing together. And let that go, please. So, how worthy a thing we're doing and our practice of this very simple practice, as Eugene said last night, of being with the breath. How magnificent, how magnificent, because we're opening to that which is most marvelous, most amazing, most mysterious about consciousness. So worthy of our development, at least in my view, One way of understanding what we're doing in this concentration practice is that we're learning to seclude the mind from all of that blowing of the wind, all of those flutters that Ajahn Chah spoke about, so that we are having this kind of stillness. Uh, In parts of the suttas, it's referred to as secluding the mind. And the seclusion of the mind is the beginning of a series of developments moving us towards liberation. As the mind becomes more secluded, when we turn to Vipassana, we start to see, we start to have insight that brings about a kind of disenchantment with things that ordinarily delude us, all of our wanting mind and our virgin mind and our deluded mind. We start to become disenchanted with those things because we're seeing them clearly. And that leads on into another experience and that leads on to another experience and on beautiful the way the Buddha set this up. But this seclusion is an important part. And there's not some defined absolute amount of seclusion, but this general knowing, being in the neighborhood of having seclusion. And although you may not feel this, you, everyone I've heard in any of these discussion meetings is moving towards that, is having little taste of that seclusion. I have mentioned on two occasions the benefit of surrendering to this process of staying with the breath. Surrendering meaning to abandon oneself entirely, to just go with it. So uh, other things come up, but you just let them come and go. You surrender to this process. I'm just going to be with the breath. Yes, that would be a very interesting 
a thought pattern to follow, to explore. Yes, I, that memory is, you know, I, I could sort through something about that memory if I did that. You say, no, there's a renunciation. You stay with this practice. We're in the heart of the practice. These next 24 hours, so useful, so much momentum in this practice. But here's the funny thing about the mind getting more collected and unified. As it gets collected and unified and staying with the breath, it's also got that same degree of collected and unification, that same intense focus, if you have a fantasy. So that fantasy gets the benefit of all of your time of staying with the breath. So the fantasy is the most juiciest ever. You may have, it may be your favorite fantasy, but it was never this tasty. That's because your mind is collected and unified. Isn't that ironic? The same with planning. Boy, these are really creative ideas, you know. We're pulled into it. I see the recognition on the faces out here. That actually indicates the fact that this practice is developing for you. The very power of these things to pull us off. Or something upsets you and you're so upset or you feel shaken, partially that it's those regular conditions, but partially that you've now got this new condition, which is your mind is collected and unified, and it's more intense. It's more intense. We are learning to be with intensity and not getting identified with it just from this little practice of being with the breath. As you abandon the fantasy, the planning, the the creative thoughts about the book you're writing or the the art piece you're going to do or how you're going to explain to your significant other all their shortcomings in this new way, (laughs) whatever it is that you're abandoning, you are abandoning, you're learning not to be seduced by intensity. So you're, you're actually going ahead. Right now, you're still getting these little moments of disenchantment by abandoning that and coming back to the breath. Your nervous system is getting more able to tolerate this, this pool of things. Again, I see nodding heads out there. It's really great. It's really great that, this, that we are getting empowered in this way, all of us. So, one of the things we can notice is there may be little moments when there is no movement. The breath has disappeared, or the breath is there, but, and it's, it's sort of anchoring you, but there's not, there's not that much engagement. There's a kind of stillness in the mind. that, the, the, that there's, It's more like... A, You've become a stone. Your mind's an organic stone, an awake stone, and the water is passing over the stone in a creek. It's just, uh, uh, Andrea was talking about the scooter, right, and the foot moving and uh, all, all these different images of this, but it's happening automatically. You're not having to do any vitaka or vichar. You're not having to aim the mind or sustain the mind. It's just you're there with the object and it's sort of doing itself at this point. Um, there may be just, it may only happen for 30 seconds. It might happen for 30 minutes or 
uh, three hours. It's doing itself temporarily. So, and in that moment, there's not a, the, the, there's, the mind is not involved so much in movement. So then, then what is it that what is revealed in that? Then what's there? It's this, what I would call, awareness itself. So the dance, the dance of the breath, the dance of the mind moving to different objects, all of that is a Nietzsche. The things that arise and pass, the ever-changing things, things that are, that are born, like Sally in her meditation, the other morning seeing the beginning of the breath, its duration, its cessation. That is all in Nietzsche, the arising and passing of all of these mental objects, all these things that are known in the mind, arise and pass. This knowing capacity itself isn't characterized by that, that same arising and passing. It has more a sense of the, uh, of, of the stillness to it, that the mind isn't involved. It's the mind itself, that aspect of mind, this awareness is not moving in that same way. And thus again, the stillness and the, and the, and the movement. Except for the still point, there would be no dance. If that awareness were not, and it's just there, and it's empty stillness, then all these things couldn't arise and pass through it because it'd be filled up. It'd all be filled up. You couldn't move. And so you start to see, you get even in this practice, this simple practice, the luminous nature of mind starts to be revealed to itself. Where is my reference to my other thing in the island? Oh, no. <laughs> Let's see here if I can find it. This is, uh, this is from uh, the Buddha. And what bhikkhus is equanimity that is unified? This is that ekagata upeka, this one-pointed mind, this still-point kind of mind. So ekagata, the one-pointedness, upeka, this, this equanimity. The mind's one-pointed and it's totally in balance. It's not moving. Things can move it, but it's not moving. When I told you about someone pulling the blanket out from under me, I didn't, my mind did not move. It registered the, the thing, but it did not move. And what bhikkhus is equanimity that is unified based on unity. There is equanimity regarding the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness, the base of no nothingness, and the base of neither perception nor non-perception. This bhikkhu is equanimity that is unified based on unity. And so what we are starting to get a little hint of is that kind of uh, uh, characteristic of the mind, this unified mind, this, this Ekagata Upeka. And we, we're getting little hints of that. And um, you know, that means that we are other than what we tend to think of ourselves, of our ego mind wanting this or not liking that or being afraid or feeling lonely or worried about something. We start to get a sense of, the, of this largeness of the mind that each of us possess, each of us. 
Every person in this room, there's not like, oh, this person's got it and that person doesn't have it. This person's got more of it and that person's got less of it. We may have more access at times of, of getting a glimpse of a feeling of it, but it's inherent to our nature, as the quote of Eugene's that I read from Suzuki Roshi. Uh, To be aware of movement does not mean to be aware of your small sense of self, but rather of your universal nature, Buddha nature. That that sense, we start to get the glimpse of it. And here's something that's really amazing. That mind state, when the mind is resting, that in that igata upeka state, that's not the end of the unfolding. That's like being at the true beginning of the unfolding. It's like in Aikido it was said, uh, it certainly was true for me, that when you get your black belt, now you're ready to learn how to practice Aikido. That until you get to the black belt level, you don't know enough to know how to practice. In some way, at, at this state, there, when, when, when the mind's this, we've got getting this kind of access, there's this, this, these deeper levels of practice open to us. It's, it's very exciting to me in that way. It's very humbling. It's like that, that at any point that I'm walking along the path, I know I'm walking on this vast, spacious path whose characteristics are beyond my even comprehension at this point in the practice for me. So I practice with don't know mind rather than getting lost in speculation The one thing I do know is I know how to practice. And I know that this is a practice, so I turn to practice rather than speculation. This has the effect of relieving doubt. This has the effect of relieving judging mind, comparing mind, thinking I've got to fix my mind. No, all I have to do is practice. I know how to follow the breath. And when when it's Vipassana practice, I know how to be with ever-changing objects. Everybody in this room knows how to follow the breath. Everybody in this room knows how to be with ever-changing objects. We're already empowered to do this practice. We're already good enough. So what is all this thoughts we've been having? What is all this? Put them down now. Just put them down. No, just align with the practice. That's Mara speaking. All of those, all of those comparing and judging thoughts, those, those doubts. They're not useful. They're not relevant. They are actually specious. They're not, they're, they're not really relevant at all. It is a deluded thought because that's not where we are. Where we are is this moment of practice. This is really a, a fact-based thing I'm saying, but one has to uh, sort of move along to get to it. And again, I have to do this for myself. I have to remind myself at times, just practice now. We start where we are, And when we get lost, we start over. Do we need to know much more other than how to practice? Both the samadhi, the samatha practice, uh, working for samadhi, and then the the vipassana practice through mindfulness. I have repeatedly pointed to here, now, because that many times helps us discover the stillness. We may not know it as stillness, but we are really present. 
And when we're really present, there is a momentary stillness. We're here. We're not lost in that, what Eliot calls the waste sad time of before and after. We're really here. Everyone in this room has had many of those moments. Maybe you didn't recognize it, but you've had many of those moments. They can be very brief or not so brief, but you are here. You're here with that inhale. You're here with that exhale. When Sally was doing her meditation the other day, or many different times, you have been here for this moment, and this moment, and this moment. You're not in that waste, sad time of before and after. Here, now, here, now. As we learn to orient that way, it will carry over to the Vipassana and it carries over to daily life. And that sense of presence, of here now, that ties back into the, the joy of relaxed attention. So there's more joy possible in our life. Not at the end where there's this full liberation, but here now. This joy is possible because we're not lost in all these ever-changing things, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. Our own papancha minds become more slow-motion papancha mind, and we have choice. Choice what? To in this moment to choose non-suffering rather than suffering. To have thoughts, to have actions, to have words that, that lead to non-suffering rather than thoughts, words, and actions that lead to suffering. All from this simple practice of staying with the breath. This is our beginning. As we practice, there is a real awkwardness to the practice because we're learning how. We're like a baby learning steps. And so uh, naturally, it's going to be clumsy or we're learning to play the piano and we're trying to learn scales and we, you know, we're, we're still learning the scales and they're awkward so the sounds can be maybe a little challenging at times. Uh, uh, Rilke has a wonderful way of describing ourselves in this way and he calls it the swan. This is the name of the poem. And he says, this clumsy living this clumsy living. You recognize that maybe? Your own moments of clumsy living. This clumsy living. This clumsy living that moves lumbering as if in ropes through what is not done reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks. And to die, which is the letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, is like the swan when he nervously lets himself down into the water. So to die, to surrender, to surrender to the moment, to surrender to not knowing mind. This is like, this is the dying that uh, Rilke is referring to. This clumsy living that moves lumbering as if in ropes through what is not done reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks and to die, which is the letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, is like the swan when he nervously lets himself down into the water, which receives him gaily and which flows joyfully under and after him, wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried, 
each moment more fully grown, more like a king, further and further on. This clumsy living that moves lumbering as if in ropes through what is not done reminds us of the awkward way the swan walks. And to die, which is the letting go of the ground we stand on and cling to every day, is like the swan when she nervously lets herself down into the water, which receives her gaily and which flows joyfully under and after her, wave after wave, while the swan, unmoving and marvelously calm, is pleased to be carried each moment, fully grown, more like a queen, further and further on, onward leading. The Dharma is always onward leading. The practice is onward leading to this further union, this further unitedness of the uh, equanimity and the one-pointedness in each moment, whether in a concentrated way or in a choiceless awareness way of Vipassana. For this reason, I ask you, just ask, uh, not uh, instruct, but ask you, urge you to please notice the briefest moments of contentment in these next 24 hours. The briefest moments when it's just the breath, the briefest moment when there's sweetness or there's calm in the body or there's a sense of aliveness or the mind's a little bright, to really open to this noticing when there's any stillness, any quiet, any steadiness of mind. I'm really urging, I'm asking you to do this. It's so easily missed. It's so easily missed. And when it's missed here, it gets missed in daily life also. This is Cheswa Miwosh and his poem, The Gift. A day so happy. Fog lifted early. I worked in the garden. Hummingbirds were stopping over honeysuckle flowers. There was nothing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew no one worth my envying him. Whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that once I was the same man did not embarrass me. In my body, I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw the blue sea and sails. This is the gift of the moment. There's a moment when you're not envying anyone, when you, are, when you have nothing to forgive, you're not embarrassed by anything you've done. Don't miss that moment. Please don't miss that moment. Please don't miss it. Here, now. Don't miss it. Such a rare opportunity. We're safe enough. We're secluded enough. Not only can we come to be with the breath, but we can notice the quality of mind that is present in being with the breath in this moment. It's not that it's all uh, cherries and cream, 
You know, it's not like that. What's being pointed to is, is not that, oh, it's, everything's just great. And that's not some Pollyanna, though this is the best of all possible worlds. The liberation is the liberation of the mind, not the liberation of conditions. We are, through this stillness, we are engaging in this process that makes the mind liberated from conditions. So we'd still have our preferences for pleasant conditions, for our children, ourselves, our loved ones, our friends, a world of peace. We, of course, have those. Those are value-based. Out of, out of metta and out of compassion, out of sympathetic joy, of course, we would want favorable conditions. But we, we, our sense of well-being becomes less and less dependent on conditions. And we, we start to have an understanding that we are not that reactivity part of mind, that is reacting to conditions. But we can respond to this deeper sense of this joyous presence. Again, Rilke. No, my life is not this precipitous hour through which you see me passing at a run. You know that about your life? Running through your life? I certainly know it for my own. No, my life is not this precipitous hour through which you see me passing at a run. I stand before my background like a tree. Stillness. I stand before my background like a tree. Of all my many mouths, I am but one. This united. I stand before my background like a tree. Of all my many mouths, I am but one. And that which soonest chooses to be dumb. I am the rest between two notes which struck together sound discordantly because death's note would claim a higher key. Here's the delivery. But in the dark pause trembling, the notes meet trembling. I'm sorry. But in the dark pause trembling, the notes meet harmonious. There's this moment and this moment. Or there's object and the knowing of object. And in that pause in between, in that still point, the dark paws trembling, the notes meet harmoniously. This is where the harmony comes in our life, in the still point with the dancing. In the still point with the dancing. So to conclude, going back to where we started, in my beginning is my end. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. The inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light, still and moving, Erebon, that's like in 
uh, exhilaration. Eribang, without motion. Concentration, without elimination. Such a beautiful description of the mind when it's free for a moment. The inner freedom from the practical desire. The release from action and suffering. Release from the inner and the outer compulsion. Yet surrounded by a grace of sense. A white light still and moving. A white light still and moving. Erevan, without motion. Concentration, without elimination. Stillness without movement. Let's close our eyes for a moment. Once again, open to the stillness of this moment. So much stillness in the room. Outer stillness. Inner stillness. So spacious, the stillness. So much space in the stillness. Limitless, the stillness and spaciousness. So much space, infinite space through the stillness, here and now. The stillness of this knowing, that which knows, so limitless. This consciousness that knows here, now. Surrender to this knowing. Let the knowing rest on the breath. Let's surrender to the knowing. No matter how brief, pouring attention on this knowing. Knowing what? Knowing the breath. But knowing, vast, vast this knowing. So still, so spacious. So calm, so steady. Let your heart know it. 
intuitive knowing, intuitive knowing, not thinking. <laughs>